You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Mark 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Hello again. As I said before, my name is Adam. It's wonderful to see you here today. Please keep your Bibles open if you have one with you. Uh, You can also follow through our welcome card. You can get access to the outline for today's sermon. Uh, And also there's some links there to get to Bible Gateway, the website where you can look up an online Bible. Uh, Christine has read out kind of verse 1 to 13 to give some context. We're just focusing in on verses 9 to 13 today, though. Uh, Let's pray and ask God to be with us. Father God, you know what week we've each had, uh, the weekend that we've had, even the morning that we've had. And we pray that whether that's been a good or bad week or morning, uh, that you would help us to focus now on you, to listen to you as you speak to us through your word and help us to, to know Jesus more and what it means for us to follow him. Amen. Do you have the right qualifications? This is a question we spend a lot of time asking ourselves. We strive for years at school to get the qualifications we need to get the job that we want. Yet even when we get the job that we want, we might ask ourselves, do I have the right qualifications for this job? Many of us have children and we wonder if we have the right qualifications to be responsible for these young human lives. In work and life, we often feel like we have to keep learning, we have to keep striving, we're we're driven by a desire to have the right qualifications. It's also a question that we ask of others. When we need to see a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, we want to know, do you have the right qualifications? Where we have a lack or a gap or a need that we can't meet ourselves, we want to know that the person we turn to is suitably qualified. Now, this has been made incredibly difficult by the internet. We can watch 
a YouTube video, read some Instagram posts, listen to a podcast, and then consider ourselves experts on bike maintenance, healthy dieting, and the state of play in the Russia-Ukraine war. But the funny thing is we don't necessarily recognise the qualifications of those who disagree with us. Do they have a degree in engineering, nutritional politics? Have they truly engaged in a deep dive on this topic and considered all sides of the argument? Do they have the right qualifications? Let's be honest, we've all been to visit the doctor and wondered why the sort of treatment plan they've come up with doesn't seem to match what Dr Google told us. We have a complex relationship with qualifications, don't we? This is very much the case when it comes to spirituality. There are no topics more important than the meaning and purpose of life, the existence of God, the fate of those who die, justice and mercy and peace and liberation. And despite our self-confidence, our bravado, our, our best efforts on the internet, despite the long conversations with a friend deep into the night, we can feel truly unqualified to ask or to answer life's greatest questions. We can feel truly unqualified to prepare ourselves well for death and to face the God who made us and who asks us to give an account for our lives. That's why we need help. It's why we need an expert. It's why we need someone who is a doctor of the soul, an expert on the law of God, the master of balancing our moral ledger. And there's only one person who's truly qualified to do that. It's Jesus of Nazareth. But the thing is, we have this weird relationship with authority, don't we? We'd rather believe a TikTok video than a theology professor. You know, we always have doubts and more questions. More questions about Jesus. So what I'm asking you to do today is to come with me and see what we can learn about him in the passage in front of us. So that you can do the hard work and make up your own mind. Today we're going to explore Jesus' qualifications. And we're going to start with our first main point where we see three testimonies about this. We're looking at the book of Mark at the moment, starting with chapter 1. And while I'm going to focus on verses 9 to 13 today, it's worth considering the prior section because we see then that there are three people giving testimony. Mark the author... John the Baptist, and God the Father. So Mark is the one who first testifies to Jesus' identity and to his qualifications. If you've got a Bible open, have a look at verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It's what the whole book is about. Jesus is the King, Jesus is the Saviour. But who is Mark and can we trust him? We actually don't know that much about Mark. His name is not actually mentioned anywhere in this book. Even the title, Mark, is something that was added to the top of the book much later. Uh, it's church tradition that tells us that he's the author. There was an early church leader named Papias. He was born in the second half of the first century and he wrote about Mark because he had heard about Mark from the Apostle John. And this is what he says. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order, of the things said or done by the Lord. 
So Mark doesn't seem to have been an eyewitness of Jesus, of these events, but he was a close companion of the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness. Uh, Mark does appear in the book of Acts. He's referred to there as John Mark. Interestingly, he was the cousin of Barnabas, that guy we learned about two weeks ago. Mark travelled with Barnabas and the Apostle Paul and he helped them on their missionary efforts. So here's a guy who wasn't an apostle, but he had access to them and he was there at the birth of Christianity. And it's clear from his book that he has a tight focus on demonstrating to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is seen in the, the hectic pace of his narration. There's hardly any kind of downtime or detours. Jesus just seems to rush from place to place. It's smoothed out in our English translations, but the original Greek uses the word immediately a lot. It's kind of like how I used to write stories when I was a kid. you know. And then Jesus got baptised and then he healed some people and then he did some teaching and then he did some miracles and then he went to Jerusalem and then he died and then and then and then. Yet despite this pace... Mark has very carefully structured his book. I'm not going to go into all the details right now, but I'll mention one idea. If you're familiar with the book, you'll know that the high point comes at the middle, where Peter finally confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what the first part of the book has been building to. You know, all the signs that Jesus is God's king. He's the powerful one who will restore all things. Yet Jesus then responds to Peter that as Messiah, he must suffer and die, which throws Peter into a total spin. And so the second half of the book shows how Jesus is God's saviour, who will restore all things, that's right, but through his sacrificial death. So in the first part of Mark, we meet Jesus the King. In the second part of Mark, we meet Jesus the saviour. Now I share all this with you to... Build your confidence that Mark knows what he's talking about. He can give a reliable testimony and he actually is trying to tell us who Jesus is. So Mark has the right qualifications to tell us about Jesus' qualifications. The second testimony that we see in the opening of Mark comes from John the Baptist. We looked at that last week, so we're not going to go into detail today. But at the very least, we can look at verses 7 and 8 to see what he said about Jesus. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. So John testified that the coming one, the one who's preparing the way for, would be greater than him, greater than John, and he'd also bring God's spirit to purify and to renew people, and to bring God's presence. The third testimony, which is the one we're going to focus on for the rest of today, is God the Father. In verse 9, Jesus comes from his hometown in Nazareth and is baptised by John the Baptist. And in many ways, he's like the people of Jerusalem who've gone out into the wilderness to be baptised by this wild prophet who's preaching, declaring that a time of change is upon them. But immediately after Jesus' baptism, something amazing happens. Have a look at verses 10 and 11 in your Bibles. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open 
and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus has just received dramatic confirmation of his qualifications. Heaven has been torn open. Perhaps a better way to think about it, it's it's as if heaven has been split open, like the opening of a curtain. Part of our physical reality is pushed aside and then the Holy Spirit of God comes bursting through. This is the man who will baptise people with the Spirit because the Spirit has come upon him. And then we hear the words of God the Father speaking through this opening, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And with this we have the qualifications of Jesus revealed. If you like, this is God sending through a reference letter to confirm that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. Which brings us to our next main point, the qualifications of Jesus. I want to show you that two aspects of Jesus' identity have been revealed here. He is the King, the Son of God, and he's the Saviour, the Servant of God. But it's going to take a bit of work to see how this simple statement from heaven actually does all of this. And that's because God's words are filled with deep meaning that depend upon centuries of history and theology of Jewish understanding. And and they would have been powerful words to the Jews who were gathered by the banks of the Jordan River. Now, you might feel that that's unfair. Why would God do it that way? Well, let me give you some contemporary examples to show you what I mean, what I'm getting at. Uh, Just imagine that we're there today by the banks of the Jordan River Jesus gets baptised, heaven is split open, the Holy Spirit comes down, you hear a voice that says, this is my son, the force is strong with this one. You might think, well, perhaps this is the one who's going to bring balance to the force. What about this? This is my son, the odds will be ever in his favour. Ah, maybe he's the one who's going to bring revolution to Pan Am. This is my son, the boy who lived. Oh, this is the one who's going to defeat Voldemort. And this is my son. He will bear the ring. Ah, this is the one who will end the threat of Sauron. Now, maybe I'm just a real nerd because I get all those. Maybe you got at least one or two of them. But the point is, we have our own cultural understanding, our own background, our own sort of shared narratives and shared stories that helps us to understand these phrases. They're kind of shorthand aren't they summaries of a much bigger story a much bigger picture and so there's a much bigger picture a much bigger story that lies behind the words of god the father at jesus baptism first of all jesus is the son of god that means he's the king perhaps you already know this but the word messiah is hebrew for anointed one and in greek that word is christ So anointed one, Messiah, Christ, all the same word, just different languages. In the past, prophets would anoint the kings with oil as a way of setting them apart for their role, to to be king. Other people would get anointed too, and typically God would even anoint people, not with oil, but with his spirit. The spirit came upon Samson to give him strength. The Spirit came upon King Saul so that he could lead the armies of Israel. The Spirit came upon Daniel the prophet so he could have wisdom. 
these ones were anointed. And so now too, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. In fact, he's anointed to be king, and that's revealed by God's choice of words. Listen to Psalm 2, which was written a thousand years before Jesus. This is verses 6 to 8. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This is a coronation psalm that would have been recited many times throughout Israel's history. And it makes a really significant statement. See, the kings of Israel were considered to be God's sons. This is about their relationship with God. It's also about their authority. They can represent God. Sadly, the the kings failed to live up to expectations. And so the people of Israel hoped for the ultimate son to come, the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate king, the ultimate messiah. There's also a, a deeper meaning. There's a deeper meaning to God's words that wouldn't have even been immediately obvious to the Jews gathered by the Jordan. As Mark will show us in the coming chapters, Jesus is not just the Son of God because he's the King, he's also the Son of God because he himself is divine. He is fully God. He's a member of the Trinity. We see here in this story, Father, Son and Holy Spirit all present. This lends credibility to Jesus and to his mission. It also helps us to see why it is that the Spirit comes down upon Jesus. See, it's not that the Spirit needs to come to give Jesus divine powers. It's not that the Spirit has come to, like, elevate Jesus up to Godhood. Rather, this is about his anointing, his commissioning, the beginning of his public ministry. Jesus already had full access to the power of God, to the power of the Spirit. What's the first concept behind the words of God the Father that he spoke at Jesus' baptism? Hopefully you're still tracking with me. We're going to move on to the second one now. The second concept is that Jesus is the servant of God, which means he is the saviour. Do you recall last week that I said the people of God, they were waiting for the true end of the exile, they were waiting for the second exodus. Just as a refresher, God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt centuries before through an event called the Exodus. They then spent 40 years in the wilderness being refined and tested so that they would love God and so that they would obey God. And after that, they were brought into the promised land. But sadly, they failed to obey God. They engaged in idolatry. They they worshipped other gods. They worshipped idols. They engaged in injustice. And so to punish and re-purify them, God sent them into exile in Babylon for 70 years. The prophet Isaiah, he foretold that the exile would end, that God would lead them back into the promised land and establish a new age of justice and peace and holiness. It was to be an age of spiritual renewal where people didn't just obey God through external pressure from rules and laws and threats of consequences, but through having their hearts transformed by God's very spirit so that they longed to obey God. They delighted to do that. That time 
had never come. And so the people awaited the fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecies. Prophecies like this one from chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is one of the famous servant songs that we find in the the book of Isaiah. And do you see how in these words, God promised one day to send his servant, a servant with whom he will be pleased, in whom he will delight. And he will put his spirit upon this servant so that he can bring justice and spiritual renewal. This servant will deal tenderly with those who struggle, those who suffer. These are the words that would have come to mind as they were by the banks of the river, as they hear God speak. The voice of God the Father says to Jesus, with you I am well pleased. And so just like a pop culture reference, This would have sent their minds to Isaiah, particularly to this passage. Maybe you're not fully convinced of this just yet. Well, later on, you can have a look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, to see how he makes this link. So you can write that down, look it up later. Matthew 12, verse 18. I think the message is pretty clear. Jesus is the servant of God who will bring justice. He is the servant of God who has the power of the Spirit He is the servant of God who is our saviour. All of this means that Jesus has the right qualifications. He can truly rescue and renew us because he's the beloved son of God in whom God is well pleased. His baptism reveals his credentials. It doesn't create his identity. It's not as if Jesus was just some random dude. It could have been anyone and God just randomly picked one and gave him superpowers as if he's Billy Batson getting the power of Shazam. No, Jesus is the eternal son of God whose identity is unveiled. It's revealed here and his mission now commences. But there's one more reason he was baptised. It's because he stands in our place to bring us spiritual renewal. John was baptising people for repentance in preparing for the coming of the Messiah. Jesus had no sins to repent of. He didn't need to be baptised. But by doing this, he shows that he identifies with sinful humans. He stands in the same river as those who were repenting. He's baptised by John as if he is a sinner, so that he can begin his ministry of rescuing sinners. And he does this by continually standing in the place of sinners. He should have been praised as king, yet he's treated like a rebel. He should have been worshipped as God, except he was despised and rejected. He should have been lifted up on a throne, but instead he was lifted up on a cross. The Jews should have poured out gifts upon him, but instead God the Father poured out his wrath upon him as he suffered and died on the cross. 
This was all part of God's plan. You see, Father, Son and Holy Spirit had long agreed that to deal with humanity's failings, the Son would walk on the earth as a man and die in the place of sinners. In some ways, I'm kind of jumping ahead to the end of the story, aren't I? But I think there's a clue to this, even in verses 12 and 13. Have a look in your Bibles. At once the Spirit sent him, that's Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So even right here in these verses, Jesus is standing in the place of sinners. And where we fail, he succeeds. Think about it. Israel was called to be God's son. They were to be a chosen nation who would be God's conduit for blessing the world. After the Exodus, they, remember, spent 40 years in the wilderness being refined, purified, prepared. Yet they grumbled and they sinned and they rebelled against God. And once they got into the promised land, they didn't live up to their calling. But Jesus showed that he'd be a new Israel. He would not sin in the wilderness. He would be the conduit for God to bring blessing to the world. Also, the first man, Adam, was likewise considered God's son. He was in a garden paradise with food and everything around him that he needed. Yet when Satan tempted him, he gave in to sin. But here's Jesus showing that he'd be a new Adam. He would resist temptation. And he was outside of the garden in the wilderness where he's not surrounded by plentiful trees. He's surrounded by wild animals. Jesus is the true Israel in the second Adam. He is the son of God who is divine but also the perfect human. He stands in our place, securing all of the blessings that Israel and Adam should have secured for us. He stands in our place, bearing the punishments from God that we deserve to bear. I understand that's a lot to take in and your heads might be a bit full, so let's, let's just pause, take a breath. We'll take stock of what we've learned. Jesus is qualified because there's the testimony of Mark the author, John the Baptist, God the Father. He's the king because he's the beloved son of God. He's the saviour because he's the servant of God in whom God delights. So let's put it this way. Jesus is qualified to be our king and saviour since he is the beloved son of God and the servant in whom God delights. That's our summary idea for today. I'm going to say it again. Jesus is qualified to be our king and saviour since he is the beloved son of God and the servant in whom God delights. So what does that mean for you? If Jesus is qualified to be your king and your saviour, then what next? Well, I'm going to suggest you should follow him. And so we're going to think about this question and unpack that and apply this passage now. Think about this question. Will you follow Jesus who was qualified to be your Messiah? Now recognise that some of you here today... You may not be Christians. That's fine. We're so glad that you're here. You're very welcome. Some of you might be still figuring out what this whole Christian thing looks like. That's great too. We're glad that you're here. This is a safe place to figure that out. 
Some of you might be fully committed as Christians, but you're just feeling a bit flat in your faith. You need a bit of a reset, a, a bit of a boost. I hope that what we're about to talk about is useful for everybody, but particularly if you fall into those categories, I pray that this last section will be helpful for you. Will you follow Jesus, who is qualified to be your Messiah? Here are some thoughts to flesh that out. First one, do you trust that he makes up for your lack of spiritual qualifications? If we want to one day enter heaven and be with God, then we we need to meet God's standards. And we need perfect spiritual qualifications, which means being perfectly holy in all that we say and all that we do, because after all, God doesn't let just anyone in. We need to be fit to stand in his holy, righteous, perfect presence. That's a bit scary, isn't it? None of us are good enough to do that. None of us have the right qualifications. Jesus does. He's the chosen one. He's the anointed one. He's the beloved son. He's the servant of the Lord. And so you don't have to be. That's the good news. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to achieve the right qualifications through your effort. You don't have to stand in front of God based on what you have done because Jesus has done it for you. Where you fail, Jesus has succeeded. So all you need to do is turn to him. Put your faith in him and you'll find forgiveness and mercy and healing and help and comfort and joy He will wash you clean. He will take away your failings. And guess what? He'll give you his success. So you can stand before God, not based on what you've done, but what Jesus has done. All you need is faith. Follow him. Here's the second question about following Jesus. Have you been baptised to express your union with him? Now let's be clear. Jesus' baptism was a unique event. We're not called to imitate it. We don't have to all go to the Jordan River and find some crazy guy wearing camel's hair to baptise us and then hope that heaven will be split open and a dove will come down upon us. Okay, we don't, don't need to do that. Jesus', Jesus baptism was unique, wasn't it? But there are elements in it that connect with our own baptism. You see, they're both about identifying with someone and they're both about receiving blessing from God. Just as Jesus identified with sinners when he received John's water baptism of repentance, so we too identify with Jesus when we receive Christian baptism in water. We are taking on a new identity. Also, we receive blessing from God. This is actually the most important aspect of baptism. Again and again, I speak to Christians who believe that baptism is primarily about their deed towards God, their way of showing to God that they love him, that they obey him. But the key words are not our words. The key words are the promise that God speaks to us. When you are baptised, God is saying, hey, if you receive this sign of water by faith, then you'll receive the gift that it symbolises you will see, receive the Spirit and you'll be washed, you'll be cleansed, you'll be purified, you'll have my presence with you forever. Baptism is about our union with Christ. 
so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the failure, the unqualified person who stuffs up their life. He looks at you and he sees his son, who is perfect. He looks at you and he says, you are my beloved, with you I am well pleased. Those are the best words. Those are the words I want to hear. That's what baptism is about. So if you have been baptised, then I want you to, to rethink about that event, to reframe it, to go, this is a wonderful gift from God, to reassure you that God loves you because he sent his son for you. And he's well pleased if you trust in his son. If you haven't been baptised, then what a wonderful opportunity to consider getting baptised this year. I'd love to talk to you about that. I've already heard from one person who's keen to get baptised soon. We tend to have a class, kind of two or three sessions, talk through what baptism means, help you prepare for that. You get to chat to an elder and kind of talk about your kind of understanding of Jesus, where you're at with your faith. If that all goes well, then we can make plans for you to be baptised. So if I'm just by laying it out here, I'm being up front, this is what it is, this is what will happen. If you're interested, come and talk to me. The final question I want to ask about following Jesus is this. Will you let him liberate you from feeling like an imposter? You may have heard of a psychological state called imposter syndrome. It's a serious condition where people have this kind of chronic doubt of their skills and talents and have a constant fear that they're going to be exposed as a fraud. Now, while it has a clinical definition, I think we tend to use it in our culture a bit more loosely we might apply it to any kind of time when we feel like we're being at risk of being exposed as a fraud, as a fake, as an imposter. You know, we pretend like we have the right qualifications, the right understanding, the right capacity, the right demeanour. Yet we know that we're faking it. And we're worried that we're going to get caught out. This is something we can even experience at church. Which is terrible, isn't it? But it's so true. We can feel like we're a spiritual imposter, which is even more complex. And we feel like we have a standard that we need to live up to to be a real Christian. And it's impossible to reach, so we fake it. You know, we pretend and we, we hide this secret and we hope that no one will know. You know, we pretend that we're not struggling with sin in our life. We pretend we're not struggling with doubt. We pretend that our family is happy and godly and everyone gets along and we sing songs to Jesus over breakfast every day. We pretend that we're reading our Bible daily. In fact, we read through a whole book of the Bible each day. We pretend that we know those big, long theological words that someone just used in a conversation with us. We pretend that we've got this whole Christian thing sorted out. We have to pretend because we don't want to be exposed as an imposter. Now, if any of this is ringing true for you, then let me urge you to consider how Jesus liberates you from this. Jesus is the one who's qualified. He's the king. He's the saviour. You don't have to be perfect. By the very definition, being a Christian is saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect. I'm not the king. I'm not the saviour. So we don't have to worry about being imposters. You can admit you have failings and weaknesses and limitations. You're allowed to still be growing. You're allowed to still be figuring things out. You're allowed to have good days and bad days, bad weeks, bad months, bad years. Be open about your struggles. First of all, to God, to yourself. But be open to people in church. 
Be open about your struggles because Jesus is the saviour, not you. And be open about how you don't have everything under control because Jesus is the king, not you. It's okay. Jesus is qualified to be our king and saviour since he is the beloved son of God and the servant in whom God delights. These qualifications can truly benefit you and I'm going to unpack them and give you more evidence for them in the coming weeks and months. So be back here every Sunday as we'll journey and learn together. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for those words that you spoke from heaven on that special occasion when Jesus was baptised. Thank you that you've helped us to take a deep dive into what those words mean and to see the rich background that Jesus is the King and the Saviour. And so may we follow him, trust him, and find great liberation and freedom in him. Amen.